0: Like this podcast? Then Good Money is for you. A new podcast from Origin Capital, Good Money explores how high-impact investments are fighting global inequality and could be the key to achieving the SDGs by 2030. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We all know the importance of stepping back every now and then and asking if our day-to-day actions are taking us closer to our goals. And those of us in the social sector work hard daily to deliver on our promises to stakeholders. But in the long term, are we always achieving our desired results? As a CPIA or Certified Professional Impact Analyst, you'll have the tools to enhance the impact of your programs. Participants in the CPIA program learn to identify their impact, use innovative financing to maximize it, and measure and evaluate their impact in a meaningful way. With a teaching team that includes academics and practitioners, the three week-long courses will give participants the skills they need to make a difference and set their organizations apart. The CPIA program at Queen's University is for anyone serious about maximizing their impact beyond the financial bottom line. Sign up for our 2019 courses today at cpia.queensu.ca.
1: You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today's episode, we have Jeff Sear. Jeff is a managing director of Raven Indigenous Capital Partners. And Raven is an Indigenous-led social finance intermediary. And uh, Jeff can unpack that a little bit and explain a little more about what that is. Jeff, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Dave. Uh, Thanks for having me on um, to the podcast. Yeah, happy to unpack what that all means for everybody. Yeah. Um, So let me just, you know. That'd be great start there. So Raven, our story, is our origin story As we started in 2017. Oh, we started to bring the structure of Raven Indigenous Capital Partners together then. And um, I can get a bit more into that in a few minutes, uh, where the idea all came from. But we are an investment management, social finance, Indigenous-led intermediary. And we use those words very specifically um, because we have sort of, as we call it, the three-legged stool of Raven Capital. Um, uh, One is, of course, an impact investment fund, which we just did our first closing in May. So yay, super success there. Very happy with that. Two is we do social outcomes contracts, um, which is a type of pay for performance, pay for success model. And we had just signed our first social outcomes contract a few months ago, and they're doing um, on reserve geothermal installation in Indigenous housing on reserve Indigenous housing, uh, very exciting. It's a whole new way of doing business. And the third one was we do some entrepreneurship and enterprise training. Very, we've done about 17, 18 sessions across Canada, really with early stage entrepreneurs. And so those are the, the sort of three main things that we do. And of course, on the side we do a little advisory work in the Indigenous impact investment space as well. Well, that's who we are. I mean, at the core of it, there's there's Paul who's a managing partner. Myself is a managing partner, and Stephen Nairn, who is the chief investment officer. And then we have two staff who we only recently, actually, have brought on full time. We're a very small unit that way. So awesome. That's
1: who we that's are, great. and we're headquartered in Vancouver. If it, uh, you know, cool
2: in Vancouver. Nice.
1: That's great. I missed number one, you were sort of listing three things that you guys do, the social outcome contracts, the entrepreneurship. What was the first one again? Impact Investment Fund. Yeah, Yeah, Impact Investment Fund. Great. That's what I thought. Okay. So maybe let's take a minute and just unpack that each of those a a little bit for everybody to make sure we kind of got everybody on the same page. And maybe we'll go in reverse order. I'm, I'm curious. So the entrepreneurship you're working with, um indigenous entrepreneurs who have a, looking basically like a business model a, like a, a social enterprise idea idea to solve a problem through a business solution and you're looking to sort of seed these entrepreneurs and fund them capacity build is this the idea
2: right i mean at, at this stage the sessions that we uh, we held for indigenous entrepreneurs has been really focused on investment readiness and how to understand equity and investment capital in their business because a lot of them don't. You know, our experience is entrepreneurs are very good at that thing that they do mm-hmm. and that's what we love about them, right? Very innovative. And then there's a whole bunch of other things, of course, which over time, as you grow your enterprise, you bring on technical capacity. So what we're trying to do is reach early stage entrepreneurs and say, hey, what does equity capital really mean? What does it look like? Um, how is it different than secured debt and you know traditional loans? And so we've done sort of one day sessions with, well, by now it's a few hundred Indigenous entrepreneurs. And I think what the natural outcome of that is in this fall, what we're going to do is actually launch a much more intense Indigenous accelerator out of, well, well, it'll go across Canada, but it'll start in Vancouver. And, um, that's a little bit more upstream. There you would have fairly solid business concept. You may actually have revenue. You may need all very specific. Help regarding sales and marketing, equity structure, HR, different finance, uh, looking at different markets. That whole bit, intellectual property, for example, and getting intensive, putting them not only through you know a one-week accelerator four times per, in that year, but also actually pairing with mentors who stay with the business uh, owner, the entrepreneur throughout the whole tenure of it. So that's how that part of, of Raven is matured. It's going to go into an acceleration model and it's going to be an indigenous appropriate acceleration model and i touch on indigenous ways of knowing and being and how we understand things and what why the world looks a little different you know to a to an indigenous person especially after a couple hundred years of colonization like how things are a little bit different than in mainstream is what i would say so that's the third you want to start at the end yeah
1: but can we maybe pause there for a minute because i'd be very curious and i will sort of state my you know lack of embarrassing my lack of Understanding of you know indigenous cultures and the and a lot of the aspects of colonialism that disproportionately uh, hurt indigenous Canadians and so I'd be curious it like be helpful. What are some of those ways in which you know the world is different for indigenous entrepreneurs? I, I imagine some of it's you know lack of access to financing, but I imagine there's a host of other.
2: Yeah, I mean it. It can be a very wide range of things. The most egregious thing that we see is the inability to access financing, mainstream finance. And maybe there's what we call the unconscious bias built in some of the financial systems in this country. is probably not a revolutionary statement to say that. And so when Indigenous entrepreneurs, the other half of that about accessing mainstream finance is a lot of that comes with you need to have secured debt, collateral-based financing. And if you look at colonization, basically when you strip people of the capacity to actually own homes and own property and then the transfer of intergenerational wealth which you would know as friends and family financing or you know self-finance entrepreneurs well those things are not totally but largely absent and so you get this real gray area. it's an early stage gray area i mean there's grants out there but grants only do so much until you need financing um Sometimes you need debt-based financing and, you know, the Aboriginal financial institutions out there, they've been doing it for 30 odd years now. They're very good at that, but it's small cap and it's very specific. And again, it's debt and it's secured debt. So those are one of, that's the biggest challenge is why we actually exist in this space is for exactly that reason. Two is, you know, there's a lot of Indigenous entrepreneurs don't approach, let's say they're an Indigenous tech company, of which there's several we're invested with. They don't necessarily are not looking for a big IPO. Their end game may be completely different. In sense, I've, I've had a couple of the companies say, how do I give my company back to the community? I've done okay. I'm doing well, but I'd like to divest myself of this, but give this enterprise to the community. So there's completely different ideas of wealth and well-being that are attached to it. One of the other things that we pride ourselves on is ceremony and, you know, being able to connect back with the land and back with the community through ceremony. Well, a lot of companies in the modern sense don't allow those breaks for ceremony. So there's just things that you need to work around and understand. There's also a lot of different community dynamics at play. And for a lot of Indigenous people, there's different legal structures, largely statutory through the Indian Act. Um, my personal bias is an abysmal policy instrument that needs to go away. That being said, not an easy thing to get rid of. So there's a whole bunch of different realities for Indigenous people. And a lot of Indigenous communities as well, if they're somewhat remote, and even if they're not remote, I suppose, um, there's a lot of trauma. Trauma from residential schools. Trauma, if you know the recent Murdered and Missing Women's Indigenous Mm -hmm. Inquiry final report. And even in those documents, you see systemic bias and systemic racism coming up. And it's a lot I get for non-Indigenous Canadians to kind of wrap their heads around, mostly because the educational system hasn't exposed people to it. And so when you go to build an accelerator, where we started this conversation, you need to be aware and you need to build for those things. And so it's very helpful um, that, you know, two of the three partners are Indigenous in our firm. We're the majority owners, Paul and I. And we have deep community experience, deep knowledge. Paul's first nations from the carrier territory. I'm Métis from the uh, Métis homeland in southern uh, Manitoba. And so we have that deep understanding and we've worked in the community space for 20, 30 years each. That's a very helpful thing. So
1: I'm really so, glad we paused there because it gets to the heart of what, you know, why is Raven Capital necessary? Why do you need to have an indigenous focus? And I think that's really important. Uh, and I am, like, I'm embarrassed and sort of ashamed to admit my naivete there. I can certainly blame the school system. It has its fair share of the blame. It was a personal reveal on a, <laughs> on the podcast, but, like, i have been overseas in South Africa and spent some time there. I was doing some work in the, in the communities, uh, townships surrounding Cape Town, and felt uh, increasingly a sense of, had some, there wasn't as much um, sort of willingness and involvement from some of the local friends that we had there to come out and support some of the work and volunteer. And you sort of get a little like, oh, well, you know there's a lot of expats coming out and doing the work and not the locals, you know, from town to, to come out and, and help. And you feel a little bit like, well, why aren't you getting involved? And I come back to Canada and start to get, you know, my head more around this, like a complete hypocrite, you know, not, not doing it. So I think it's really helpful because I've been largely unaware of the ways in which uh, I'm also reading Decolonizing Wealth right now, which has been a fascinating read. And it's by Edgar Villanueva, if anybody's listening and wants to know what that book is about, but it's amazing to me how much colonialism affects our things like even our organizational structures and corporations today. And like that a pyramid, you know, sort of a hierarchy pyramid is not the only way to run a business. And like, I don't know, I grew up like that. Oh, right. This is the only way you could run a business or run an organization. Anyway, it's not about me and my, my, my ignorance, but I think it is helpful for listeners who are probably coming from a variety of Levels of understanding about um, Indigenous Canada have paused there a little bit on, on some of that. I know that's scratching the surface of a very big topic, but I, I'm, I'm glad we did. And I thank you for bringing some of those things to the table.
2: Yeah, no problem. I think that leads right into why we built the fund in the first place, if, if you're okay to go Yeah, there. let's do um, that. That's great. So, I mean, I had put on the Indigenous Innovation Summit in Winnipeg in 2015. The, the whole concept there was to to connect what was considered the time a fairly elitist space of social innovation and the few people who did that. But a huge promise in that space to, to fix big social wrongs, right? And then indigenous community members who were doing all kinds of innovative things, entrepreneurs, businesses, community-led businesses, all sorts of interesting things, who had no idea there was a thing called social innovation. Um, they were just people who were problem-solving and, you know, as I like to say, and getting shit done. And sorry about
1: your mm-hmm. practice,
2: No, that's... And what happens, we try to bring those two together. And then what we discovered is there's two or three problems that emerge in the space. One is there's this missing area, this gray area of capital that wasn't really available to, to, to early stage, early growth stage entrepreneurs, and really not at all in equity. Um, besides Raven Indigenous Impact Fund 1, the one we just closed, there isn't another equity fund operational at this time um, in Canada for that. And the other thing was there's a relationship handshake that would go on, that would need to go on between indigenous businesses and finance. And the handshake wasn't really happening or it was very awkward. It was very stilted, and it wasn't producing any good results for anyone along the way. Certainly wasn't bringing anything to scale. That was our big aha takeaway um, from that, that there is a space to be filled and a whole bunch of creativity to tap into in the indigenous communities who, you know, by by fact that they're survivors for so long, obviously we're innovating and and you know doing things along the way to, to to maintain our survival. So that led us to bring the fund together, and you know just to talk briefly about the fund because a lot of people ask us. You know our target size for the fund is just over five million. They say, oh, why so small? Well, as you would know from the impact investing space, if you're a new team and you're just getting bedded down, you basically have the need to demonstrate that you can do that and you can execute and and one of the important things you need to demonstrate is that there's a deal pipeline out there sufficient enough to fill the investment need and two that there's you know investors who are willing to come on board and do that there's a lot of perceived risk in this space is what i would say and you spend your first time getting over that perceived risk you do lots of hard conversations at investment committees and thankfully, there's a couple, you know, very forward thinking foundations and other high net worth individuals in Canada who say, yeah, we've, we've known about this for a long time, and we should have been doing more. What we noticed is that there's a lack of actually investment vehicles to really, you know, if you want to do economic reconciliation, you want to invest in the indigenous space, The investment vehicles just don't exist. And so that was our move to build a demonstration fund. And here's what I can say about that, since we've had our first close, we've got Updated data for folks. That's what great. We
0: say,
2: what we can say is that there is much more deal flow than we even thought. Wow! So if we had an extra five million, I think we could easily invest it. We look towards our second close in October. So it tells us a lot about the sort of hidden capacity, the you know the hidden asset within the Canadian ecosystem. And you know the other half of that is we're now starting to see, and I'd say mostly in the last month or so, um, a much higher level of interest from different investors. So those things are colliding nicely at this moment. It really is an inflection point, to use that sort of social innovation-y term. So we're very excited about the fund and where it's going. And we can talk about what the future looks like after this fund closes in October, but um,
1: is that a sec- that's a second fund with a second target of an additional five million? Well,
2: our first target was to do half, so two point oh, okay.
1: five. So you're gonna aim to raise and, the next two and a half.
2: And now we'll do the next two and a half. Gotcha. And it's, okay. it's already looking good, so we're not particularly concerned about that at this moment, but we're happy to take on new investors if you're listening. So the aim here was is we demonstrate the success of it. And throughout this podcast, maybe we should have a conversation about the impact and impact okay. metrics. I think it's an important conversation. Um, is we look towards raising a second fund of more in the area of $50 million. So more uh, sort of market standard fund size um, and start deploying that.
1: Okay, awesome. Uh, so I I'm, I'm, do want to come back and circle back on the, um, but just to sort of keep the thread going on. So we went from three to one to back to the two, This uh, oh, right. social outcome contracts and the kind of geothermal space. I think maybe that's when I had first heard about you was in relation to some of the work that you were doing there. So, um, and I found it really interesting and I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Yeah, it's got a whole history story arc of its own and I'll I'll try to keep that short. Aki Energy, who's an indigenous social enterprise out of Winnipeg, but doing work in on-reserve communities. Um, had been installing geothermal training for local First Nations people off social assistance, giving them high-end HVAC level jobs, um, installing geothermal on reserve. So what they were doing was basically creating approximately a little more than a 50% cost savings in each of the homes. Um, The systems last 20, well the systems really last 30 years, but we very conservative say they last 20. You also get a reduction in greenhouse gas emission footprint. You get the jobs that accrue. You get local economic development. Um, you get, you know, reduced utility bills, and you get a whole secondary impact side about the housing stock and resiliency. What happens within the family unit when people are employed at good level, good level jobs? That sort of thing. So that was happening. They were doing that, and they've done about just shy of 500 units over a number of years before. There was a big policy log jam um, with the federal government within, is now what's called Indigenous Services, where they couldn't use the financing method they were using before. And so, you know, the McConnell Foundation and Community Foundations of Canada, ourselves had gotten involved with them to basically just have a peer input process and say, hey, what's the real problem? You know, what's the real problem with this? And what ended up happening over a year of a social innovation lab, which we then, after the fact, called the social innovation lab, I think going into it which was, the conversation, um, was, I think I, you know, I'm partially to blame to put up my hand and say, well, let's look at funding it differently. Let's actually look at having the government of Canada fund it behind the scenes and just journal voucher the money over to INAC. Government of Canada savings, Government of Canada savings. They save on energy, they save on the cost, they save on everything It's good for Canadian taxpayers. It's good for the government. It's good for everybody, right? We entered into a period of negotiations with them. Um, didn't work out. And so community foundations of Canada said, Hey, you know what? This is so important that we'll step up and we'll be an outcomes buyer. And this could be a bit of a complex instrument. So I'm going to try to simplify
1: it for, for
2: folks. Um, People tend to think of social impact bonds. This is a social impact bond in reverse, essentially. What we do is we go back to the community and say, what exactly do you want? Do you want geothermal? Is this what you want? What are your priorities? Uh, these jobs, these social enterprises built on reserve, all this sort of stuff. And we had it validated and confirmed that that's what these four reserve communities wanted. So CFC said, okay, we'll." we'll community Foundation said, we'll be a, an outcomes purchaser. And Raven Capital, and we just kind of found our feet around the time this was happening. I had, um, created something called a community driven outcomes contract. It's really boring, but I wanted to call it exactly what it is. It's community driven outcomes contract. And so the outcomes buyer agrees to buy the outcomes. And that's just not financial outcomes. It's so for investors, they get a 4%, fixed 4% rate of return over two years. So that's great you can't just get that in a bond or anything nowadays so that works out well for most folks. but there's all those social outcomes that we talked about energy savings jobs all that sort of stuff we're willing to buy that and then i at raven would go out and accrue the investors so we need a certain amount of investors the investors put their capital in which they're already doing by the way so this already exists and it's already running um the investors put their capital in so they upfront the capital cost Aki energy does the work and the outcomes buyer buys the outcome at the end of the day, including a 4% rate of return for those investors. Um, now here's the, it's 125 geothermal units, they're capital intensive units. So there's a few million, a few million dollars involved in this, but here's the exciting thing on it. It, you know, where we innovated was centering the community at the core of it and keeping it there, making sure that the community's needs and interests are being met. There's a whole bunch of on reserve, And in community energy projects that have failed or that, you know, they're really about the money and they're not really about the community. So we wanted to make sure that that, you know, that core was um, protected and maintained. Then, you know, one of the more interesting things is in response to some questions, I created what's called a rate card. Now, rate cards are generally used in the energy industry, actually. But the rate card we created here was for. The actual valuation of the social outcomes so th- we would value the jobs and so the the jobs were valued in this case that you know there's value for the training there's value for the jobs and the jobs are valued i think the direct investment in community was around 1.3 million and so it allows somebody like employment and social services canada esdc to come and say "Well, i'll buy those outcomes indigenous services will all buy the hard capital cost of the actual equipment um You know, somebody else will come in and buy the training costs. So what the the outcomes buyers allows you to, I mean, this deals with a really big government of Canada problem called silos. And so this allows each department to pick the thing that they'll buy. And basically, you syndicate the selling of the outcomes to different departments. And so because they have very specific mandates, and you don't have to coordinate them, and I used to work in government, coordinate is really hard, then they can just buy it. So it's a whole new way for government to actually finance it, and they only have to buy it if it achieves the the, outcome. Yeah. So all in all, it moves the risk and it, it you know upfronts up the rewards and it gets out of you know what a good friend of mine, Sean Loney would say the leaky bucket economy on reserve where outside non-indigenous companies come in, pour in expertise and then pour it out, um, leaving the communities with not much. You know, and this has happened with water systems and other systems. But that's, that's nothing new. And, you know, if you allow me a minute here, uh, yeah. the outcome of that, it's so, it's so exciting that we were approached by First Nations Community in British Columbia to do uh, four more clean energy projects. So we started a, an indigenous clean energy lab there to kind of map out what an outcomes blind contracts would look like in that context. Who's supporting that lab? The government of British Columbia. Which alone is interesting because this is a non-reserve project. Huh. So then we were approached by um, our good friends at the Lawson Foundation and Aki Foods and First Nations and PEI in Manitoba to look at diabetes interventions through a social finance outcomes contract. So we started an indigenous diabetes solutions lab, which looks at a suite of interventions you need to reduce diabetes in community. And here's what I would say to people. If you think energy has good cost savings, nothing beats healthcare system cost savings, which are like 10 to 20 fold. And what we think we can do is build actually a new market-based financial instrument. So as opposed to running around and collecting investors, because oh, that's painful, there's, we may be able to do a regulated securities instrument. So we're looking at ways to innovate around that too. Um, we'll see, we've already had one lab session. We'll have our second one in September and we'll do three in both the Mi'kmaq Confederacy and the Island Lake region of Manitoba, with the First Nations communities, with the provincial governments, with the federal government, with foundations, with investors and experts, and us at the table. And that sort of collaboration is kind of groundbreaking. And there's already been three or four months of work done by a social enterprise called Encompass in Manitoba, who went out to all those communities and talked to them about what they actually want. What do they believe diabetes is? How do they believe change? And do a little bit of asset mapping from their perspective. As it turns out, diabetes is a wicked sticky problem for you know, about food and health and a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh boy. So there's <laughs> there's a lot, eh? unpacking and all of that. Wow. I don't even know where to begin. So maybe I'll just begin... By unpacking a little bit, because again, people are coming from various um, knowledge levels. I think in this space as of this as of the podcast. So I'm going to maybe try to re-articulate in my maybe words on what you've. So may I, at least I'm sure I understand, and maybe some other people will come along for that journey. When we're talking about these, you know, social outcome contracts with the term used. So when you talk about buying outcomes, right? So this is you go raising investors to pay for the cost of this. Set of activities, this intervention, this, you know, whatever those things are. You've defined a number of metrics that objectives that you need to hit. Um, Those are typically impact related. So in the case of geothermal, I'm guessing it has to do with energy production from it. Uh, Maybe it's, I don't know how you've defined that, but you've set a number of kind of metrics that you need to hit. And then right. the outcome buyer is the one who ends up paying back the investors if those metrics are achieved and only if those metrics are achieved. The, right. Effectively, the investor is bearing the risk of like, hey, what if we do all these things and we don't actually get the outcome we were intending? Right. The investor fronts that risk and the outcome payer doesn't pay anything for it because you didn't achieve or at least less. I don't know how you structured the contract, yeah. but okay. So that's right. And so from a community, found, it sounded like the community foundations were the ones who, as a maybe it was certain ones came together to be the outcome buyer initially. Am I right?
2: Yeah, the Community Foundations of Canada, so the umbrella body of community foundations came in and said, no, "Oh,
1: the umbrella know. body itself did it." Yeah. Oh well, wow. Oh, that's I didn't know they did that as a as an entity. Well,
2: I don't think that they knew they did that either. So <laughs> oh, is, oh, really? Yeah. So it's something new for everybody in the space. Oh wow,
1: that was really groundbreaking. So, then yeah, I had just yeah, assumed yeah. it was like a collection of the community foundations themselves. I mean,
2: they are essentially a collection of the community. Foundation. Yeah, no, I, but, but I credit Ian Bird, who's, who's the president of the community foundation um, for, you know, his bravery and saying, Hey, yeah, we need to change stuff in the indigenous space. Why don't we step up and do it? Now, here's the interesting thing. Foundations, what they do is they have money. That's what they are really. And so, and they spend it on public good. Sometimes they do impact investment for public good as well. And so, You know, then it's potential that we may have uh, the investors, some community foundations as well. So they may play on both sides of the table at some point in time, which is fine. Um, Definitely fine by everybody involved that that is the case. And just to to pick up on something you articulated very well is, in this case, it's a fixed 4% rate of return. There's a bunch of units of measure. One is you've actually installed a system that is working. And we know through a partner in this, Manitoba Hydro, or now Efficiencies Manitoba, is actually going to be a part of an outcomes buyer too. But they actually know when a switch system gets switched on in a house and can monitor it and tell what the energy savings is. So you you have good partners along the way mm-hmm. as you do this. In the next set of contracts, there'll likely be much more of a sliding scale of outcomes achieved to payment, which is very typical. It'd be more typical to do it that way. So you've shared the risk.
1: Right, right. Okay. And then I guess from the community foundation's perspective, that was like, if they end up and they, is this done? Like they ended up buying those outcomes, it, was that, or is it still in progress?
2: It's still in progress. We're just sort of in the first quarter of the work. Okay. So, so, and it's a two year project. Yeah.
1: And when they buy that outcome, that, is that effectively a grant for them?
2: You know, internally, they, how they working that out. No, you're not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. I don't really want to ask them that. It's a to sure. Program sure, program. sure. So,
0: yeah. No,
1: I don't uh, Fair enough. You're, I can't, You can't expect you to answer for them. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And then kind of the, I think one of the unique aspect and you touched on it before is right. Instead of, Hey, we're going to bring in an outside firm to go install all of this and bring in outside experts. What you're doing is training and equipping locals in communities to maybe help set these up or once they're set up, run them. And that's creating. Yeah,
2: actually, jobs. we actually set. we don't like we work with local indigenous social enterprises. To either do it or to set up a social enterprise that the reserve the band will own yeah and they will be there forever you know you have this weird situation now in north america that the greatest collection of geo exchange installers happens to be in on reserve communities in southern manitoba which is really weird but that's the fact because they've been doing it for a while right mm. they have now spin off social enterprises that they've done in some um, like in the fisher river community they built a car wash and a laundromat and a gym, all with geothermal and geo exchange. Now going to mini grid, they just, um, funded their own school and have put geothermal in the school using the same installers that started on these projects. These projects. Mm. So there's huge spin-off effects along the way.
1: Wow. You know, um, this type of thing is not my forte, the kind of energy production, um, whether it's sustainable or not. Is there some sort of technology that- that allows geothermal to be more viable in more recent years? Is this always been something that we just haven't thought creatively enough about how to extract it? Like what's, what's why is this now and why it hasn't it been done for a longer period of time?
2: I don't really know the history of energy production. Yeah. In Southern Manitoba, these are what we call geo-exchange units. So you drop six feet down, you put a loop in a sort of PVC-like piping with a water-based heat pump furnace. Some houses you have to do some retrofitting on, some don't, um, with a biodegradable liquid that runs through these pipes. The benefit to this, and here I want to talk for a second about social impact, is one of the benefits of this is it provides air conditioning in the summer. Yeah. Now, Manitoba is actually quite hot in the summer, like very hot, like 35 or so. It gets quite yeah. warm and then stupidly cold in the winter. And I can say that because I'm from Manitoba. <laughs> when we went there to look at the units and talk to some of the community folk. Um, one of the grandmothers said, Hey, you know what's so cool is I have air conditioning in my house. Now all the grandkids are coming over here to hang out, and I got to tell them our stories. And I get to, you know, transfer knowledge and teach them things and hang out. So the social impacts go beyond the financial energy cost savings, greenhouse gas emission, footprint reduction, all that sort of stuff. They go into very personal things at the community level, which is you know, which is really at the core of this social outcomes contract in Manitoba is we have an agreement with CFC that, that as part of it, um, we'll be looking at collecting the secondary outcomes data in community through very deep kind of personal interviews with folks as we go along. And I think that's where you're going to see extreme value add. So when we talked about impact investing,
0: mm-hmm.
2: this is what I consider real deep impact. You can feel deep impact all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to just like an ESG screen, like, oh, yeah, we're using plastic, you know, using paper straws, not plastic, which is not much of an environmental strain to me. But mm-hmm. so I'll just put that out there for your listeners.
1: Yeah. So, and I'd like to circle back on impact measurement as well, because I, I completely agree with you on that front. But we see, I see it a lot in the, in the economic development, the microfinance So you know, yeah, financing space. Like, oh, we gave out X number of loans to X number of individuals and the average loan size and repayments rate. And this is great, but like, it's not impact. It's just a bunch of activities you've done that. Hopefully will lead to impact. I think it's a good activity to do, but like, wh- what's that actually doing in communities? Um, and so, the better we can, closer we can get to actually measuring actual impact, the better. Um, the question is, how do you do that cost effectively so that you're not spending all of the money <laughs> trying to measure the impact? Well, I do want to circle back to that. One just quick note while I'm thinking about it, I bumped into through Acumen Fund um, an organization called the Sixty Decibels, and I actually even in- connected with them yet but they've been doing some work with acumen around lean data and particularly using kind of like short form mobile surveying to get kind of capture data from end beneficiaries and remote kind of communities so they may be an interesting connection point for you if you don't already
2: we're aware of that i think you've got it right it's striking this unique balance between collecting robust data and having it be cost effective as you're doing it um On our impact fund side, and I appreciate the lead there, but on the impact fund side, we created an Indigenous impact metrics framework so that we're collecting impacts that matter in an indigenous context as well. So we're just starting, as we just had our first investments, we're just starting to deploy that. Now, what we're going to do is, you know, we look at this, we also take into account the SDGs, sustainable development goals, and kind of mark and measure towards that. And as well, um, we are likely to bring in a bit of a measurement against the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's Report and the 231 recommendations and just kind of track where these things can hit on some of those recommendations. It's a bit of a daunting task, but, you know, we've been in the space for a while, so we think we know how to actually create a a filter or a funnel of impact measures that kind of can hit and, you know, be valuable for investors and people. And at one point we want to actually get into retail investing, right? And, and have Canadians participate in, in the
1: reconciliation so, space. Oh boy. I'd love to talk about <laughs> this stuff as well here. So can you, can you unpack that a little bit more on the, like, is that something that framework that you're building out now and around measuring the contribution towards reconciliation goals and the kind of murder, murdered, missing indigenous women?
2: yeah we've just started to do that process and so there's a bit of a learning curve for us to be honest on it um i mean we're all a bit of policy wonks so i think you know we've done some of this stuff before but i think it's important to show we're an indigenous firm investing in indigenous businesses to have indigenous impact so let's measure against those things that really matter right now and so i think our goal is to and we're just starting to to kind of think how these things can interconnect. It's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle how they interconnect, and tell a good impact narrative around that. To us, that's actually the whole reason why Raven exists. Is we want to change the lives of people in our community. So let's measure how we change the lives of people in our community. And yes, there'll be cost uh, considerations that'll run into it. But I, you know, there's now AI and other tools out there that are somewhat more cost-effective to, you know, start breaking down narratives. But i don't know if you know this but the one way that indigenous people transmit knowledge is through through storytelling right so let's collect some stories and mine that in terms of its impact uh, i don't think again that's revolutionary i don't think we're letting trade secrets out of the box here on on your podcast but it just takes some uh attention to detail and diligence to get it done
1: yeah i know exactly I you mean you know from the my world vision perspective we're operating in kind of fragile more remote communities and these are overseas but there's similar threads there's always different you know vast differences as well but there's the sort of common threads you can draw and obviously storytelling is a big part of that even just like spirituality and the role that that plays in the in the life of somebody that doesn't in an increasingly for most of us an increasingly secular country and so just like recognizing the role of that anyway there's a lot to be aware of and measuring what matters to those individuals and how they perceive uh, positive outcomes is really important in, you know, not just measuring it in financial terms. Like, you know, we're probably more likely to do from the developed West. So,
2: that's exactly the case.
1: But as you say, it takes time, effort, and energy to like understand it, to try to measure it. And like, you know, so you can, we can talk about like, Oh, well, we want to have impact and we're, you know, and you can pay lip service to it or you can actually do the things and do the hard work and it sounds like i love that you're committed to that cuz you you know it and that's your entire purpose that's why you exist it's not because like oh, hey we can make a bunch of money while we while we make some positive impact it's like no we can make some positive impact and you need to generate some money to drive the capital in to do it but the order of that really matters right <laughs> in terms of priority yeah.
2: we, we often say and i didn't coin the phrase um, we are profit seeking but not profit maximizing yeah. we're trying to separate ourselves from vc like venture capital firms out of the Silicon Valley esque mm-hmm. kind of mold. so it's okay in our in our world to seek profit Now what we find in indigenous contexts the use of those profits is often very different you know and we've heard stories and I've personally heard from elders where if you accumulate wealth if you in effect hoard wealth, if you accumulate a lot of wealth, you're actually somewhat mentally ill because that good is designed to be spread. And so in, in that's what's behind the potlatch and some of the other ceremonies was giving away the wealth. So often you'd have uh, chiefs and leaders in community who were the poorest members of the community because they gave all their wealth away. So that was their role to do that in community. If you take that and you transfer it to impact investing, you have investees, companies we've invested in, who take a whole different look at what the end state of their mission is it's okay to make money. It's just how they want to do things at the end of the day with that. And so, yeah, we're, you know, my opinion is, and I'm probably sound somewhat out there is that we likely do economics wrong in the Western world, maybe most of the world, in the sense that we drive towards growth and we drive towards GDP. We don't actually ask ourselves what that means at the end of the day.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we're probably getting it wrong because we have things like a massive gaps in income equality. We have rapid problems with climate change, you know, some unrestricted industrial growth. If you take recent news articles like ocean plastics, one of the major things behind ocean plastics is actually ghost netting, ghosted fishing equipment that's been dropped and left and floats around the ocean, right? That's the biggest problem that's actually a problem of economy. That's a problem of economics and how people are doing the things that they're doing. So when we think about what Raven's doing, we're thinking about the whole thing. Like why and we do this in our screen, because so this is an interesting conversation for your podcast. We only invest in Indigenous enterprises, Indigenous controlled, owned, managed with indigenous teams and intended beneficiaries. And it's some mix of those. Because in a private capital world, an equity world, you actually have dilution of ownership is a common thing, It's not necessarily a bad thing. And so, yeah, we we will take minority stakes on board sometimes, but in minority positions. And if you want to talk about wealth and economies, one of our grounding principles is to have responsible exits from these investments. And that means management buybacks, employee buybacks, exit structures that leave the wealth and the management capacity inside those enterprises and inside those communities. And then we go on to the next one and bring technical assistance and capital and other things to help folks out. So, I mean, you're giving me an opportunity to talk about stuff I haven't really talked about at length.
1: No, oh, I love it. I'm really happy to have this. I think this is endlessly fascinating and, and I think it uh, aligns with my worldview. So you know, maybe I'm in an echo chamber here, but I, you know, well, I was just at women deliver last week and they're talking about, you know, we're talking about investing in women led businesses and not, you know, not that you can't, you know, men led businesses can't be doing some positive things to gender equality, but like women are disproportionately not getting access to capital compared to men. Right? They're not, they don't own decision rights. And like, we need to start shifting that we need to, you know, so it's the exact same thing and probably even more pronounced in a indigenous context. And we need to get, power and money and decision rights into the hands of those who don't have and the disparity is just so crazy. I mean, measuring GDP is such a, you know, it's such a crude attempt at measuring progress, right? Like, I mean, I don't, that we're not even questioning, you know, the limitations of it is kind of crazy. So anyway, this is all up my, you know, right in line with with my thinking. I'm curious for your feedback. You know, it struck me when we're talking about social enterprise, I have a friend I was, chatting with who works in, in a social entrepreneurship and in, in um, none of it. And uh, she was sort of saying like, interestingly, a lot of the ways that, you know, indigenous ways are sort of even like operating in terms of from a business perspective are aligned with the way the whole sort of the social enterprise and the whole purpose and profit movement, which is like envir- acting and operating and being in nature in and more sustainable fashion. And so now we like, Historically they've sort of we'd go in and work with entrepreneurs in the digital context and sort of say, like, hey, no, 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 you need to be profit maximizing, you need to cut your costs, you need to don't worry about uh, and they and now they're coming back to like, oh right, no, no, you guys had it right all along. Being sustainable is the right thing to do. And we're playing catch up in a lot of ways. And that, that was her thought, not mine, but it it like resonated with me. It felt like right, in a lot of ways, you know, we need to be looking like just In a lot of ways, and I know not every indigenous community is the same, but if I am going to sort of make a generalization, seems that sustainability and how you, your impact and and just like the relationship with nature is so profoundly different. Right. Um, And we need to play some catch up.
2: You, you, You know, if you drive your identity largely from the land and even language, indigenous languages, when they, you know, the meaning behind words and the connection to land, and place and spirit and intentionality of, of what people do does come through not in every but in the vast majority of indigenous social enterprises for sure and lots of the indigenous but how they want to interact with the world and they're willing to i don't know if the word sacrifice but they're willing to take on on balance a lesser return on investment for you know sustainability and impact and you know Good health, mindfulness, well being, whatever words that we want to use. So that actually makes some of our work easier as we invest in it, because they're kind of already there. We don't need to take them to that place. Um, what I hope and what I think will go on in the impact investing movement, as people will recognize that as a value, an additive value to the portfolio, that those businesses really mean sustainability in a deep way. Um, because yeah. of who they are i mean you have to report on it but i i think it, it adds value as an investment thesis component to things it's part of our theory so i'm hoping it does and it seems to be working out that way as we go through just past the first round yeah and so i mean one of the things that i would say to that we think is very important and this is a very good analogy to the gender gender investing and gender equality movement which is You know, it's just worse in the Indigenous context, pretty much. It's kind of the same thing, but worse with a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of colonialism (laughs) wrapped up in there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Is that you need Indigenous-led enterprises, Indigenous-owned enterprises, Indigenous-led intermediaries, Indigenous-led capital. Like, it's all part of the theory, because when you do that, you know, we always look for this in impact investing. and I'm sure you know this more than I do. You want everybody right aligned. So that, you know, usually that means right aligned to make profit, but in this case, it's right aligned to do a whole bunch of other things too, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that's why, and that's why I think gender led businesses, as it turns out in an entrepreneurship sessions, indigenous entrepreneurship sessions that we ran, uh, 70% of the participants were women. Yeah. Which kind of matches what we kind of colloquially know, like having been in community for a long time. So, hmm.
1: That's great. I hadn't made that connection just until we sort of chatted right through this final point around like your impact fund and you're investing in indigenous led businesses. I mean, if you want you know socially responsible or environmentally responsible businesses, boy, like it's almost just sort of like endemic to the names the businesses because of that value so yeah, I love that that's a fantastic thesis, and I think teasing it out for people so that they understand that. From an investor standpoint, I think it would be a huge boon.
2: Yeah, it's not always hard bakes into it, but a lot of the time it is.
0: So.
1: Well, right. I don't want to over, but like it feels like that's a pretty great first, you know, cut at. Like I'm disproportionately likely to get a business that's acts and operates in a sustainable manner if it's indigenous led compared to, you know, it's- is it an oversimplification? Probably, but like, boy. It's a great first cut.
2: <laughs> You've increased your odds. Yeah, well.
1: right, right, and that's like the language of investors, right? We're just trying to skew the probabilities, right? It's exactly um, so, can we spend a few minutes? I'm mindful of the time, but like, I maybe just a little bit about like how did you your story, like where did you start, and how did you get to where, like what you're doing now? You're doing some yeah. really amazing stuff.
2: Probably it worked out that way because I didn't start from the investment space mm-hmm.
1: at all. Yeah. So,
2: I was actually born on Vancouver Island in the, uh, in Comox, the land of the Comox people actually, because my dad was military. So how that works into the story is, um, we come from a large Métis family in St. Francis of Xavier and St. Norbert, Manitoba, scripts along the Red River, the whole kit and caboodle. But my father and four or five of his siblings, he has 11. Anyways, four or five of them joined the military, Air Force and Army predominantly, um, because, you know, of poverty, really. And, you know, needing to earn a living at the time. That's why I ended up being born in Comox, because we were stationed in British Columbia. And then I spent six years in Germany in Baden Baden there. And then finally back to Ontario, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. It's the problem of being in the military family. And I ended up doing my high school and undergraduate work in in Manitoba, at the University of Manitoba. And I had spent a couple years in India on a exchange program and came back to study Asian languages. These are the other Indians, as we like to say, in a funny mm-hmm. way. <laughs> Asian languages and politics. And what happened is I got involved in, um, well, I worked for a while for Canada Customs just to work my way through school and as a teaching assistant. And then I went to Queen's University to pursue my doctorate work, which I didn't finish because I, I, I left back um, had a very ill family member and I went back to Manitoba to take care of them. And in that process, I got hired on in a policy position for a couple months, but then as a negotiator for self government for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, and then as the director of tripartite self government negotiations for the Manitoba Metis Federation. So I was now in the space. And primarily, what I did then for the next, I'd say 15 years or more, if I've ever stopped, was actually negotiations as a negotiator. Mm-hmm. And I was then headhunted to go into Ottawa and work under doing some aboriginal consultation under the nuclear fuel waste act so it's a sticky bit of mm-hmm. consultation what <laughs> you think the pipelines are bad try nuclear fuel waste for a while uh-huh. um, and then working at Privy Council office in the RCMP and then at Aboriginal Affairs and I left Aboriginal Affairs because I didn't like the way that the government was acting and how it was doing things and I went to be uh, the executive director of the National Association of Friendship Centers uh, mm-hmm. for just over six years And that was a real hardest job I've ever done and most rewarding job I've done in some time. But that's the sharp end of the stick for service provision in community. So all of a sudden now you're seeing communities dealing with government funding and having to deal with big social problems and the funding and the people in Ottawa being completely out of whack with what the needs of the community are. And it's just so apparent. And even if you tell them, they still don't because they're kind of and, and I was a federal bureaucrat, so I can be honest about it because people get slavish. To the things that they know how to do and are very unwilling to change. And then you get some paternalism in there and other things that just occur in big bureaucracies. And it was through the National Association of Friendship Centers when I put on the Indigenous Innovation Summit that it became clear to me. And that's the, 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 the story of, um, starting Raven Capital at that point. And we've had some really key supporters. Along the way, the McConnell Foundation has always been a leader in Indigenous granting in the space mm-hmm. and a thought leader in social innovation. Um, they weren't doing much Indigenous social innovation because that really didn't exist, but we're willing to go down the path with us. You know, one of our first investors, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I can be a public about this in our fund was a group called the InSpirit Foundation. It was a smaller Canadian foundation, but super forward thinking. And they did something what I consider revolutionary, which they probably think is just de rigueur for what they do. Is they shared their due diligence of us with other foundations and other investors. That's super important because you cut down those really big time frames right down. So having key allies along the space was really important. As we first came out here, but this is all fairly small capital. Now we need to move into big capital. And I think the marketplace is generally ready for vehicles now, and people are starting to look. And, you know, there's a whole fastest growing part of Canada's population. With all the land rights and access rights that Indigenous people have to everything, and a whole bunch of creativity and traditional knowledge, are just ripe for investment, and so and for growth, in the sense that Aboriginal people want to grow. But growth in, in a business context, so if you're a major insurance company or financial institution or pension fund or bank, or, and in the social finance side, you know, really um, myself and Paul Assert, um, We've been looking at social finance instruments for a while in our other jobs, and he was CEO of the the BC Association of Friendship Centres for a while, for 20 years, not just a while. And we were trying to find different ways for governments to spend money that led to better outcomes. Because governments and some investors like to count things, count heads, count people through programs, count jobs. Those sort of things may not be as value or as resilient at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, you need a bit of a resilient economy in a lot of ways so I'm also driven by the fact that I have five children uh, you know a beautiful Métis wife who works in the space as well and it's good because it was a hard push up the hill to get Raven going it wasn't I suspect it was harder for us than for non-indigenous financial institutions so Mm -hmm. part of my takeaway on that is it's tough and I think there's unconscious bias different that exists in the system and a lot of perceived risk. You know, the other on reflection, I think it's only our third business partner, Stephen Nairn, who's a world-class impact investor who's been doing stuff in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America for 10, 15 years and gets better than market rates of return on his funds. And he left that work very purposely because he recognized uh, sort of what you said. Hey, wait a minute. In Canada, there is this issue. Why aren't we doing this here? After he read the Truth and Reconciliation's Call to Action. And, and then approached myself and then Paul to sort of say, can we do the right thing in our own backyard? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm way off track here of my origin story, but... No, it's great. That drive me, I mean, and I've sat on boards, and I used to be on the Trillium Foundation's board and chair the um, CHR's Indigenous Advisory Board for CIHR, the Center for um, Indigenous Health, Institute of Health Research in Canada. And so done all this volunteer stuff. I've now largely collapsed that. And I only deal with Raven now because, well, hey, we've got growth and we need to pay full-time attention to to doing all this work. We have very strong financial and business background. So we understand all this stuff and a very deep community connectedness, um, which really, I think, is the key factor in trying to do this. Um, you would recall the, uh, there was something called the Cape Fund that Prime Minister Paul Martin had started, and I think it struggled, and I think it's largely exited now, but it had struggled
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: along the way. And I suspect because people maybe have treated that like philanthropy and not like investing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I suspect your attitude going in matters a lot to how you do things, and they were not an indigenous group. So
1: yeah, right, right, right. The rel- Those relationships matter, the understanding yeah. matters, yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to kind of walk through that. It's an amazing set of experiences um, you're bringing to the table, and then your partners are bringing to the table. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting Stephen uh, a couple times before, and familiar with the work he was doing at AHL, um, which was great. But um, this is really cool. So yeah, he's. I mean, his whole background's fascinating too, right? This is a load, you know, loaded with experience. So maybe we can finish off just being mindful of time, really going back into the fund in a little bit more detail. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the types of names that you're looking at. Like how, what are you, you're primarily making equity investments. Or are you doing any debt? Um, what size of investments are you making? Sure. Yeah. Entrepreneurs listening, uh, <laughs> and just entrepreneurs, they may want to. Right. <laughs>
2: So the ticket size we look at is between 250000 and $1.1 1.
1: 1 Okay, so pretty 1. early age at the low end.
2: Right. Um, we think that that's where our services are kind of best placed is with that group. Um, to be honest, they're also super exciting, um, super exciting businesses. And our first investment, which is fairly public, is in a tech firm called Anamiki out of Victoria on Songhees First Nation. Um, Real... Super Canada's first Indigenous B Corps, like really leaders in the space. And we think some of these companies, you know, can have real growth should they choose to have it. Um, so we are somewhat sector agnostic for the demonstration fund, but it seems to be that we've clustered um, around tech and IT, around uh, marine and land-based products, ecotourism, and likely some in human capital. So those are the spaces that seem to have emerged for us in our deal flow. Of course, we're still writing deals and seeing entrepreneurs right now and then get super exciting calls as early as yesterday. We are definitely a national firm. So we have uh, from Victoria to New Brunswick to Northwest Territories to Iqaluit to Winnipeg and Edmonton. So we have stuff everywhere. Uh, Canada's a big place. Cost of doing business is a bit expensive, but it's uh, very exciting opportunities um, in that. We have an all-Indigenous investment committee that screens uh, screens our work. Um, yeah, so I'm just, just trying to think of what else you need to know about the fund.
1: Tell me a little bit about, I'm just curious, what sort of factors, and you don't have to get the, every, list every detail, but what are sort of the primary factors that you're looking at when you're considering an investment? You know, there's sort of always the horse versus the jockey type. Discussion around is it the business idea or the entrepreneur who's running it that's bigger importance, or what sort of factors are you really like trying to hone in on at the high level?
2: Yeah, to be clear, we invest in people. Really, you invest in the entrepreneur and the management team. Um, They have to see things to execution. That's where you start. Good ideas are are really important. Um, Community connectedness for these indigenous businesses is something that we screen for, and impact. So it's not enough for us that you create jobs because most investments do that. So that's not really a screen. The question is, how are you having more social impact than that? What are you trying to do? And most businesses so far have been very good at articulating that. Hmm. Um, We've seen businesses that want, who are non-Indigenous, but have a majority Indigenous employees that want to sell it to their Indigenous employees. Hmm. So we've seen different sort of turnovers and governance structures and things that are very interesting. And so we need a good change narrative. I think Um, we're looking at long-term systemic impact from these businesses. And we can see that when we look at them. So we started with the human beings who we're investing in, who needs to see it through. We are looking for businesses that have been around a few years, are in the black, maybe at point of needing equity. Usually it's equity for scale. It's very hard to build businesses on debt in the long term. You usually need to Get equity at some point if you want to scale. So we were—that's our kind of eighty percent we've reserved some of our fund for startup. Um, we haven't found that startup yet. Um, I say I think we're still looking for a startup that would fit in the space. So we're still hearing from people. People are willing to, you know, send us an email, pick up the phone, and then we can happy to sit down or you know have a couple of Zoom calls with folks or video conference calls with folks. And kind of go through what they want to do and what they want to accomplish, you know. And then we have a, you know, like every sort of impact firm, you know, we have a screen. We start to look at the financials are going to have to work. And then we look at structuring deals that are, we're hoping primarily equity or quasi-equity, or I guess people use the term mezzanine finance. We do have the capacity, but have not done yet a debt deal. You know, we're also willing to look at royalties, blended buybacks, ways, and with, this is patient capital. This is capital that's going to wait for you, and it's capital that's going to come in tranches. What we find is, you know, someone get, wants five hundred thousand dollars. They don't need it tomorrow. They need a hundred, then they need two fifty in ten months, right? It needs to be staged for them, and that's where you get better return. We, in a couple of the deals, we've taken minority stakes, but we're very particular about being minority stakes. Yeah. So we're also working towards, you know, I think that there's a an undeveloped space in this country around intellectual property, which we're horribly bad at in Canada. We're not good at commercializing intellectual property and protecting it. And I think that that's a place, a role that we're going to can like increasingly play with our enterprises about their intellectual property and how to monetize that or protect it. Depends what they want to do with it.
1: So yeah, those are the
2: sort of businesses that we're looking at, and I think. In a second fund, we'll look at larger ticket sizes. We'll do a, a bigger range. You mean you don't want to do, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollar deals on a fifty million dollar fund. You'd get tired really fast. So I think yeah. you'll use different sizes on the second fund, but you anyway. w We're quite willing to stack capital with other investors. And we did on the first deal. Business Development Bank of Canada came in. We did a million dollar deal with Anamiki. This is all public, by the way. Yeah. And uh, Business Development Bank of Canada came in for two hundred and fifty, dollars We came in for seven hundred and fifty. dollars so Oh, awesome. We're, we're willing to work with the players that are out there, including other Aboriginal financial institutions, which there's 51 of them across the country. So uh-huh. they're doing lots of good work. That's great. Well,
1: that's awesome. So maybe the sort of last thing we'll touch on, uh, upon a little bit, because we've talked you know, about impact numerous times. And, you know, I think it's a, an issue all of us in the impact investment space wrestle with is, Measuring impact and and then sort of tracking it in ways where, especially if you're walking across different contexts or different sectors, you're achieving different impacts in different spaces. How do you sort of now, when you're talking about an impact fund and you're investing across different sectors, how do you sort of think about for the fund itself in aggregate the impact that it's having and being able to communicate that to your investors? Right.
2: So let's be honest we've set some things in place and we're working towards how we'll in the end report yeah. on it
1: yeah it takes time um, to build that
2: yeah it takes time to do it right i mean what we're starting with is working with each of the individual enterprises on their impact narrative
1: okay
2: um that doesn't mean standardizing that means just working on it so they understand what it is right and we've had you know some success with our first enterprises who are doing that and then what we're going to do is collate that and look at it from an indigenous perspective in community, what does it mean? And start to draw out categories of impact. And then what I think what it really requires, I mean, anybody can put a spreadsheet together or a chart, but what it's going to really require is storytelling. That is exemplar of the thing that you say. When we say this changed these people's lives, exactly how do we mean that this changed their lives? Mm-hmm. And so use a story to tell it and then to bring out different indicators on that. Um, we will be looking at things I don't think regular funds look at. I think we're going to take a hard look at resilience, um, community resilience that gets changed or individual resilience that gets changed. Um, These are sort of early stage thoughts about how we're going to go at it. And then what I think the easiest thing in the world to do is actually connect it to SDGs. I think those are wide goalposts. Mm, You can run at those, but it's a purposeful intent to have a conversation with Indigenous communities about those SDGs and Indigenous entrepreneurs so that they think about it. So it's mm. more about translating it down the line than it is more us translating it up. We're actually going into community and into businesses. Okay, now I want you to think about your impact because mm-hmm. I think it's here and you're not saying that it's there. So let's talk about that. And then we've had a couple conversations where they went, oh, yeah, you're right. That is impact alone. One of the things that we notice is B2B, so Indigenous business to Indigenous business work that started to emerge. Um, which we think is in a very important impact narrative that otherwise doesn't get captured. On the social finance side, the impact narrative is everything that you do, right? It's if you're doing social outcomes contracts, you're basing payments based on impacts. So you start with an impact frame where you don't need to know everything, but you need to know highlights for it and proxy measures, and you get into it. So that's right. Um, yeah, that's about as much as I can say on a podcast about it.
1: Yeah, I understand. I like your answer to that. I mean, I think that's pragmatic and it's the only, I think, real honest answer you can give if you're truly trying to measure impact is if you're sort of forcing like, hey, look at, you know, we're going to immediately quantify it. A, are you really quantifying impact and the right types of impacts? And the real hard impacts, the real, I think, ones are harder to measure. And so it's just an honest answer. It takes time to build that. So I love it. The last question I'll say is, is there anything you want to sort of bring up about Raven that, uh, you know, is just a sort of a public service announcement or an area that we didn't cover that you thought? Yeah,
2: the one thing that's emerged, and it's now happened because we've had a a few little earned media events, um, is that people have approached us for the infamous, can we have a cup of coffee and sit down and talk about something? And I think just due to time considerations and all that, what we've been what we've done is we've built what we call Raven Capital Plus, which is basically an advisory service um, in a very open-tiered structure. It's on our website, people go look at it. Um more this is I want to direct this at both impact investors and enterprises that um call us up and we'll work with you where you are at and what you need to talk about in the indigenous space. And so as opposed to being just this cold box of, oh, they're an impact investor. They collect money and then they'll talk to us when they want to invest in us. Not at all. We're open to conversations with people on a wide range of subject matter. And so just, you know, reach out. We'll be as open and as honest as
1: we can about things. Awesome. I am going to check that out myself. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll have another conversation at some point on, on that front. I'd love to, I am definitely, as a fan, following the progress at Raven and um, what's the
2: website for everybody? Raven capital partners.ca.
1: And do you have any social accounts? I can link to them. We can, you can tell me afterwards if you want, I can link.
2: Yeah. There's Twitter accounts at Raven capital and there's our personal Twitter accounts and, well, I'm not so good on Facebook um, and we're, we're all over LinkedIn. So if there's a, okay, great. a lot of people are on that, there's a way to find us there.
1: Too. Okay. I'll get all those links and include them in the show notes, but Jeff really appreciate your time. It's a uh, love what you're doing. And I hope the podcast helps get some awareness and if there's anything I can do, let me know.
2: <laughs> for sure. For sure. I'm sure someone come out of the podcast, then I'll owe you a dinner and a coffee. Uh,
1: no, <laughs> nothing owed, but thanks a lot. I appreciate it. We're even. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Mike. All right. thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, I can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast.
0: Here's the, the Impact Investing Podcast.
1: Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.